Well, it's a great joy for me to be with you all this morning. I've followed the life of this church since its beginning with great joy, and it is really fun to uh, serve with Mark and another man with James on the board. So kind of watching you guys today, so be careful. I'm on the board. I'm kidding. You know, I came here to talk to you about my favorite topic, who we are. Who are we? We're followers of Jesus. We're disciples of Jesus Christ. And why? And why that's important and what the challenges are to that. Imagine that we don't know each other. Now, that would not be difficult for most of us in the room because we don't. But if we didn't know each other, and a few of you, of course, I do, and I came up to you um, and introduced myself, eventually, I did it this morning already to two people, I would ask you, what do you do? You're like, what do you do? But what if I asked you, who are you? How would you respond? Would that be difficult to answer? Uh, What would come to your mind? You might come to mind like, what a weirdo. (laughs) Ask me, who are you? I mean, what? You know, and I agree that would be a weird question maybe, but how you answer that for yourself is crucial. Who are you? If you, define, if you don't define yourself, the world will define it, for, define it for you. In my lifetime, I've come up with two, three B words and, and three P words that say these, these are kind of a, the values, how some of the values of the world. Beauty, bucks, and brains, or prestige, power, and possessions. Now, of course, we all know this. We have experience with this, but these don't define us. They don't reveal who we are. They don't reveal our worth. They don't show you our purpose. They do not define us. And if you lead down the path of beauty, brains, and bucks, or whatever, uh, you're going to discover that it's empty, um, that it's, it can lead to great pain if you don't have the values that Jesus wants you to have. What you do, what you know, what you have, will change throughout your life, and who you are should transcend every season, every life circumstance, every relationship that you have, who you are. It should transcend all of it. Now, we're in a church, and so what I'm getting ready to say is not going to surprise you, but life is about God. Colossians 1, 15 through um, 17 says that you and I were made by Jesus and for Jesus. That means pursuing Him and His purposes. His purpose and His purposes is what our life is really all about. Everything outside of God eventually proves to be less than full. It proves to be empty. And so our chief identity is follower of Jesus. I was talking to a friend of mine who was confused about his life calling not long ago, and He said, what's the ultimate call on my life? What is the ultimate? I want to be faithful to do that. And this is a great question. I go, well, um, what do you think it is? And he starts talking. I go, I wonder if the ultimate call of our lives doesn't differ at all from the initial call of our life. We're like, what? It's like, what's the initial call of our life? Jesus said, follow me. I don't think it gets more ultimate than that. Keep following him. 
course, that led to an, a discussion about how he should do that. But our chief identity is follower. Living in glad surrender to him is our joy. It's, it's my joy. When James and I were talking about this sermon, he emailed me saying, disciples are those who follow Jesus. I clued in on that word, and it's like, that's what I want to talk about. They learn from him, they obey him and his teaching, They're, they obey him and his in, 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 and they imitate his model of life. And I would say, amen. We belong to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 7, 21 and 22 say that we are bondservants of Christ, bought with a price. That means we're not our own. So that's literally who we are. And if we're not in that purpose, we're outside of why we exist, and life goes awry. It, it's not what it should be. So I want to talk about that today. Once Jesus was confronted by a man, we just read the scripture, who seemed to have it all. He was rich, a ruler over a domain. He was young. He was known. He was educated. He had people's respect. But by his own words, what am I lacking? By his own words, that wasn't enough for him. He was empty. And Jesus identified a desire in him when he answered, and he said, if you wish to be perfect, and then he goes on and gives him some advice that we'll delve into here in a second, but he uses this word teleos, teleos. If you wish to be perfect, this is the word that Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It has a lot of meanings. Uh, teleos means complete, finished, fulfilled, content, perfect. And isn't that what we all want? We want the ultimate finished life. So we're answering today, what is our ultimate? I've already said what it is. But Jesus gets right to the heart of this guy and, and, and discovers what this man wanted most. But his question reveals what he wanted most. What am I lacking? And Jesus said, gave him an answer and said, come follow me. The answer is following Jesus. In the early 1800s, a man, a politician, was put to the test. And being tested is not unusual. It's not unusual for any of us. But this test uh, was not about his job. It was more of a test from God, not for this person's political gain. The test involved a man who was strongly anti-slavery, and he was standing alone in the House of Representatives that was strongly pro-slavery. I'm speaking of John Quincy Adams, the sixth United States of America president. After he uh, served as president, he sought uh, for a House of Representatives seat. He won his election. And for the next 18 years, he fought uh, slavery. To him, slavery was unthinkable. He spent 18 years fighting this evil, and he came to be known as the hellhound of slavery. He was relentlessly attacking it over and over again. He was booed on the House floor. He was called down. He had a gag over. He was threatened. He had a really, really hard time. He was being tested again and again and again. Once he was asked, because he suffered from depression and deep frustration over 18 years trying to solve this problem, he was asked why he wasn't overcome by the challenge. 
Why did you keep persisting in this challenge, even though you're booed down, all this stuff? And he has this classic answer. I don't know if you've ever heard it before, but you're going to love it. You're going to put it on your refrigerator. Uh, he said, duty is ours, results are God's. Duty is ours, results are God, God's. So God put him to the test, and he discovered an obedient man. Does anything matter that much to you? Let's look deeper at the story that James just read. A follower of Jesus Christ puts nothing before Jesus, absolutely nothing. This young man approached Jesus in the other two accounts, Mark 10 and Matthew 19. This man came in haste, running to Jesus, and he was a sincere yet troubled man, and he kneeled before Christ. I mean, he was desperate. I mean, this was not a casual conversation. This man was troubled, big time troubled. He inquired what he might do to have eternal life, <clears throat> and Jesus exposed what this man valued most, and he went right after his affections. He said, if you wish to be complete, if you wish to go the distance, if you wish to be perfect, then go sell all of your possessions and give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Jesus tested him. He was sifting his heart to discover what made him tick. He was basically saying in this dialogue with him, what do you really want? What matters most? And this is what this text is about. Jesus sheds light in his answer to this guy on what is most valued in the kingdom of God. If I were to ask you what's most valued in the kingdom of God, what would you say? Here's a quick answer. Matthew 22, or 37, it says that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And actually, this is what I think Jesus is doing here with his answer to the rich young ruler. It's not that this man is saved by selling all that he has and gives his money away. Jesus never told Nicodemus this, that you had to be born again this way. Uh, he ne Paul never said to the jailer something like this. He said, believe and, and he said, believe and repent. So Jesus is not saying this to him like all of us to be saved, we got to go sell everything we have and give it away. Jesus is emphasizing this great first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We could paraphrase verse 22 this way. So he goes, what am I lacking? How do I inherit eternal life? What's this about? He's kneeling. He's, he's pounding the table. He's like, what's going on in my life? I'm, I'm desperately missing something. And Jesus basically goes, empty, empty yourself of everything that's in my place and then follow me. Love God with no other loves with all of your heart. Jesus reached deep into this man's heart exposed it, and following Jesus Christ didn't matter, didn't matter at all. God's been putting a lot of people to the test to the, since the beginning, sifting the heart. Um, for me, I, I'm going to share four tests just briefly over my 67-year life. In 1974, actually, 
February 22nd, it's my spiritual birthday, uh, 1974. What is that, 50 years of, of, of being a Christ follower? But in high school, Jesus sifted me my heart of two girlfriends that were bad for me. Um, in college, it was a friendship with a guy named Mike that I smoked a lot of pot with in high school. We got arrested for possession of marijuana together, and I was always trying to lead him to Christ by smoking pot with him and compromising and listening to some good music, Bob Dylan, The Grateful Dead, Moody Blues, yes. You know, it was a lot of fun, but I was kind of in and out of being a faithful witness and being really stupid. And um, after we were arrested, Mike um, asked me to lie for him, to protect him in court, because he was an adult and I was still a minor. He was 18, I was 17. And uh, he asked me to lie, and I, I said, I, I, I can't do that, I'm a follower of Christ. This is before I was compromising. And I argued with my mom about our friendship with Mike, and she said, you, you gotta stop. You gotta just stop hanging around him, he's bad for you. And I go, Mom, you know, he's, he, I'm a Christian, he needs to be saved, and you're not ready to walk with God with Mike's friendship. You're just not ready. And I, we'd argue, I was yelling at her, and I remember in our kitchen in Minnetonka, I just went, boom, and I just cracked our drywall and put up my whole fist through it. And mom goes, mom goes, you're forgiven of that. We're not gonna tell your daddy. And she hung a picture over that, and even when we sold the house, that hole was still there. <laughs> like. Ten years later, you know, I was like, my mom was awesome. <laughs> but but my but my but my my relationship with Mike was sifted, and it was a, it was a test. It was a test. God used my college days to sift my heart of allegiances that were not fully given to Him to see if I was willing to reach my fraternity to Christ. And then in my 50s, not that long ago, my sense of security and significance was challenged. After being with crew for 29 years in Eastern Europe and Russia, thinking I'd be buried there, the Lord did some things that told me I need to go back to the United States. And it really rocked my world. I mean, it changed my team, my ministry context, everything about me. Uh, and I, I needed to humble myself and be obedient and go home. But anyway, my point is, Christ is going to sift our hearts, and that means He's going to sift yours over and over and over again to make sure that you're not replacing complete and sole devotion to Jesus with anything else. For you, what must be sifted? How will you identify it? Let me help you a little bit on this. How will you identify what must be sifted? to follow Jesus and know your purpose and keep living in your purpose, living in glad surrender. Matthew, or, yeah, Matthew 6, 19 through 21 says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. A treasure. What is a treasure? What is it that you treasure? A treasure is what absolutely moves your soul. What you consider in your life to be 
most valuable. You cannot treasure something without setting your entire affections upon it, your goals, your desires. A treasure shows up in your speech. You can't help but talk about it. A treasure shows up in how you spend your money, your time, your talent, what you sacrifice for. What you sacrifice for is going to reveal your, your treasures. Jesus said, don't be deceived. Earthly things, pursuits, possessions can't provide you with security. And that's what he was saying to this guy. That was what needed to be sifted for him. That was his treasure, all of his possessions, his prestige, his power. Um, Proverbs 18, 11 says, the wealth of the rich is fortified, is, a, is their fortified city. They imagine it as a towering wall of security. So, what is suspected of becoming a worldly treasure? According to what we just read, it would be anything that you won't have in eternity. That's a lot of things. You'll have your family in, your, in eternity. Your relationships. But just think of how many things that we treasure that won't be in eternity. Or anything that could be removed quickly. Thieves break in and steal. Anything that you set your, your heart upon that you won't have in eternity or can be removed quickly. Just sift through that in your mind. I, hear, I came here to challenge you for one good reason. Just make sure that you're following Jesus with no other loves. That's what's required. That's what we want, actually. A changed heart wants to follow with no other loves and put nothing before Jesus. But we're stupid. We're not smart enough. We have a flesh, and we have to be reminded to be sifted again and again and again of things that get in the way. It's just important to identify. Sometimes our social standing can be a worldly treasure, the desire to please and be liked by everybody. In John chapter 9, a blind man was healed, and you can read about it. I'm not going to read the text, but this blind man was healed, and the Pharisees were super upset because Jesus' popularity was growing, and they're trying to investigate, what happened here? How did this guy who was supposedly born blind, how does he see? And, you know, nobody would say anything except the blind man. He goes, well, it was Jesus. Jesus saved me. Uh, Jesus healed me. He, he, that didn't satisfy the Pharisees. He goes to the guy's parents and goes, now, this is your son. He was born blind. You know, who healed him? And they stayed silent. They go, he's an adult. Ask him. Just ask him. And it says in John 9, 22, the reason they said he's an adult, ask him, is because they feared being kicked out of the synagogue because the Pharisees were kicked kicking out everybody in the synagogue, everybody in the community, if they confessed Jesus Christ. And so sometimes our worldly possessions can be relationships, even with family or our community, or our, well, lots of people. The blind man's social life was completely rearranged. After telling others of Jesus, he was kicked out of the synagogue being ashamed of Jesus is tempting because we know others don't understand the gospel. It's foolishness to them. Um, we used to think that ourselves. 
but Jesus changed us. We kind of were tempted by that. Yeah, they're going to think this is crazy. I used to, I kind of know what they're thinking. And so we, we compromise. This guy didn't. The pressure from the religious circle caused this blind man's parents to avoid making any comment, positive comment about Jesus, anything that would have glorified him, but, but not the healed son. So what should be sifted? You've got to identify. But why should it be sifted? It's in the text. I think it's because of Jesus' nature. The why behind sifting you is because Jesus' nature is indeed good. Rabbis typically were called teacher or master, but never good. This guy said good rabbi, good teacher, good master. The Jews re, uh, reserved the word good for God alone. So Jesus asked him, why do you say that of me? It's as if to say, do you, do you realize what, you're, what you just said? You're calling me good like you would call God good. So Jesus asked him, why do you say that of me? Now, this is not a denial by Jesus like, I'm not God, don't, don't call me that. I'm, that's not at all what he's saying because later he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Later he said, I and the Father are one. I and God are one. He's not denying anything when he answers this rich young ruler, why do you call me good? That's only for God alone. The way I look at this passage is that because the Bible calls Jesus the good news and the good shepherd, Jesus is emphasizing this to the rich young, to the rich young ruler because of what he was just getting ready to challenge him to do. As if to say to the rich young ruler, he said, if I ask you to give up something precious to you, don't forget how you just identified me. I am good. And I'm going to sift it from you because that is not good. And I am a good God, and I'm going to sift your heart of anything that is bad and in the way of your life's purpose, which is to live with me in glad surrender. So when tested, and I wish I could tell you a bunch of stories, but I, I won't, but I, I've been tested severely a couple of times with the goodness of God. I don't know about you, but it's like, God, if, if, if I was as smart as you and I had as many gifts as you, I, I'd, do it, I'd do it much differently. You ever kind of had that train of thought? What you're doing there is saying, I think I'm, I'm good. I think I'm more good than you are. That's kind of blasphemous. That's, that's pretty bad. So, depend on that one, friends. But it's, it's understandable. If we don't get the right answer, it could, be, uh, it could lead us to denying his existence, that he's not good. And we have to be willing to accept his agenda, and we have to remember his goodness the whole way through. Romans 8, 31 through 39 says that he who delivered him up for us all, his son, will freely give us all things. And it later goes on to say that all things work together for good. And then later, Paul says, give thanks in everything. In everything, and everything, and everything. He's saying that God is so good, He's going to freely give us all things, and all things work together for our good. So 
give thanks in all things. It doesn't say give thanks for all things. It's kind of hard to be thankful for some tragedies, but I can give thanks knowing that God is good, He's in control. This is not the end of the story. It's going to be seen as good the whole, at the very end, all the way through. But second reason why it should be sifted, again, it's because of God is good, Jesus is good. He, a good God cannot help but sift you of things that hurt you, period. But the second reason is because uh, these other loves have the power to deceive you and leave you empty. A good God is forced to challenge you to remove it. In Matthew 19, 20, it says, the, the rich young ruler goes, those commands, the ones you mentioned, I've kept all of them since I was young. I've, I've kept them all. And then he goes, what do I still lack? There, there's something going on in me that's just desperately missing. I, I, I'm, I'm miserable. What do I still lack? Something's bugging him. Now, again, this guy's rich. He's a ruler, likely of a synagogue. He has purpose. He, he's moral. He has position. He has power. And Jesus says, well, this is what you are entirely without. This is what you, you lack. And Jesus knew it. The ruler knew it. But what caused his lack? It was his treasure. Things not given to the Lord. Um, and things not given to the Lord have a, have a nature in them to, to wind down like we used to with old batteries. I don't know if you remember cassette decks and you know, Walkmans and stuff. And when, when you'd be listening to a record or a, to a CD or a tape and it, would, and it would go, you know, like, let me think of them. In and around the lake, mountains come out of the sky and they stand there. And then you'd hit the pause button and then it would kind of recharge a little. And then you could go a little further in the song. They just kind of wind down. Now, anybody who has good batteries now, this, this not, can't relate to what I just said, but the world does look pretty good at times, but a, a rich young ruler of our day is very familiar uh, with this feeling of something's missing. He's come to the same conclusion. And I know he's a little older for the Gen Alphas in the room, but John, whoa. Uh, the Gen, Gen Alphas may not know John Mayer, but he has a song called Something's Missing. I don't know if you've ever heard it, but it's, it's so close to being the gospel. And he says, I'm dizzy from the shopping malls. I searched for joy. I bought it all. It doesn't help the hunger pains and a thirst I'd have to drown first to ever satiate. Something's missing, and I don't know how to fix it. Something's missing, and I don't know what it is at all. And then the, the, the song ends, friends, check. Money, check. Well slept, check. Opposite sex, check. Guitar, check. Messages waiting for me on my phone when I come home, check. How come everything I think I need always comes with batteries? What do you think it means? Well, this is what it means. Something he's not willing to give up to follow Jesus, the one who created him, who knows what makes life tick. Worldly treasures have no power to give us what we're looking for. So Jesus once in Luke 12 said, life does not consist in the superabundance of possessions. Life does not in any way draw its breath from anything in this world. So why should it be removed? 
because it cuts you off from real life. The love of things will engross you and keep you from higher aims, higher purposes, higher thoughts. So put nothing before Christ. There's just two real other quick points and then I'm closing. Jesus also says, count the cost. So followers of Christ put nothing before Christ and they count the cost. Jesus' answer, go sell all your possessions to the rich young ruler, pierced this guy to the core. The whole audience afterwards was so discouraged that they said, who then can be saved? Why did they ask that question? Well, I can tell you why, because historically, riches for them in that context were a sign of God's blessing. I think they still are in our culture too. It's like we get tricked into thinking it's a sign of God's blessing, yet Jesus shows that salvation is not in any way coming by doing something or having wealth. Um, he, this guy was possessed by and trusted in his riches, and the wealth had given him a false sense of security, but it didn't satisfy his core. Putting Jesus first results in an inward change, a change of heart. Look at how Jesus requires this complete inward change of heart. The outward act of selling all of his possessions would be evidence of that inward change. The command, however, go sell this command, it came as a shock to this guy. He realized that Jesus was saying attachment to God requires detachment, detachment from the world and a denial of your selfish pursuits. That is the cost. Only then can we be free to be possessed by the power and the life and the purposes of Christ. That was not easy then. This is not easy now. He had never counted the cost and he went away grieved because he owned much property. And what about us? Do you think the ten thousands of hours were soothing to John Quincy Adams in the House of Representatives? Nope. No way. So when in, in examining your cost, don't forget the returns. Because later in this passage, Peter said to him, we've left all to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered and said, no one has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God that will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age of come, in the age to come, eternal life. He said, you'll have more homes more family members, more fields, more possessions, more farms in eternal life. So don't forget the returns. Yeah, it hurts now. Count that cost, but don't forget the returns. Jim Elliott, um, one of my favorite quotes, led my wife to Christ through his journals, said this, He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He's talking about this passage. The Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. For Karen and I, our investments, our lives have been paid back as an adventure. All undeserved gifts from grace. I wouldn't want to trade my life with anybody. Have we had to count some costs? Oh yeah. Has that count hurt? Has it been a struggle? Sure. But 
realizing that he is good and that the superabundance of how the values of the world are expressed doesn't possess any breath in it, no life in it at all. Our life is made by him and for him. And that's where we experience real life. So when I, when I think of the conclusion of this time, I would just say that this message is a little bit of a warning to people who say that they want Christ but are not willing to let Christ change their values or upset their lifestyle. Jesus does not command all of us to sell everything that we have and give them to the poor, but he does put our, his finger on, of conviction on an area of, of our life which we're not allowing him to rule. He's, he's going to go, I want that. Give that to me right now. And he's going to sift us from it. This is his challenge to us. So, what would he say to you? Is there anything in your life before Jesus? What, would he, what should you... So what is it and, and what should you do about it if your lifestyle and pursuits, which consumes your time, your talent, your money, all of that, cost you heavenly treasures? I'd encourage you to get, get rid of them right now. I wouldn't delay one second. Deal with it and ask God for the mercy and the grace and the power to do that and let it be sifted with the hope that you're doing it because it's good comes from a good master, a good shepherd, and it's in line with our purpose, which is to be disciples of his. Not believers, disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. Think about what he requires and then consider the cost is so worth it. And follow. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Um, all of us are challenged so much, even by these words today. I am. You're dealing with something in my life that you're wanting me to sift and I have to be willing to let go of it and, and surrender it to you. And I pray that the, the dear ones here in this room would be able to experience your grace and knowing that if there is something that needs to be sifted, that it could be identified and dealt with and, and that you would give them hope and, and um, grace to follow you gladly in surrender. In Jesus' name, amen.